Hello, I'm Jeff Lester and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I finally announced the winners of our Rogue Trooper Last Man Standing Contest, Consider the Blight that is Forever Evil Blight, Unveil the Secret Muse of Marvel Comics, Look Askance at the History of Universe-Wide Events, and Discuss Zenith Phase 1 by Grant Morrison and Steve Yowell, as well as much, much more. Show notes of note are available at WaitWhatPodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at WaitWhatPodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeffrey Lester! Jeffrey Lester! Jeffrey Lester! Jeffrey Lester, he is the podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta say, it starts strong. I'm not really yeah, sure. I kind of ruined the ending, didn't I? I, I completely fifth landing. But no, there you go. No, no, no. I tried, Jeff. It, it, I tried. It, I tried to give us an interesting, and I'm about to cough, so I'll have to mute myself. But I tried to give it an interesting opening to the episode. Yes, yeah, I would, I would have to agree with all of those things, especially muting. Although I, you know, don't worry about it. I've, I've been, I muted, I did it. Uh, see, whereas I sometimes it was funny editing the last podcast. There were times where I would mute myself and then unmute as I was uh, coughing. So there was a yes, lot I like. As someone who listens. Uh, it's, it's sometimes very amusing to hear. Yeah. Like, you're like the second half of a sneeze. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I love that. I, I, I genuinely find that sort of stuff weirdly hilarious to, to, to go through. Which is all for the good, I think. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think so. So, Graham McMillan, we should start Jeff, with uh, the long, long, long in the coming... Uh, announcement of the winners for the Rug Trooper contest, don't you think? We should. Hey, ladies and gentlemen who listen to this podcast, you may remember, you may not, because it was a really long time ago, uh, we ran a contest to win copies of the IDW Rogue Trooper series uh, in its collected edition. Um, and what we asked was that you would, in, in honor of Rogue Trooper's biochip buddies, uh, tell us what you would rename us if we were uh, biochips and where you would put us, what piece of equipment you would put us on. Yes. Um, and and you did so. And I don't know about you, Jeff, but in a couple of occasions I was like, that's harsh but fair but harsh. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> Never have people taking the invitation to put us in our place so literally. Oh yeah, so yeah. It, it was it was this wonderful sort of psychological test of oh oh that's what you think of us. Oh okay then. Oh sure okay. I, I was hilarious. I found psychological issues I did not even have within myself. Yeah, that's true. I now have them now. Yeah, I'm not sure if I had them before. Definitely have them now. So. um so should we uh, trade off on announcing the winners, I guess? Going I think that's down the exactly list? what we should do. Um, there is one I told you that I really wanted. So, I yeah, the one I really, really want to read is the second one. So you should start with the first one. Okay. So I'm going to start with Eric Reel, who's uh, our first winner. Uh, he says in his entry, Graham would be a biochip called Specs, short for Spectacular, and would be carried on my glasses. Jeff would be a biochip named Interest, short for, mm-hmm, 
interesting, and would be found in my phone, my connection to everything interesting. So, let's just take a moment and see that I've been put on glasses. Don't get me wrong. That's pretty damn important, especially if you need glasses to get around. Yes. However, you are the connection to everything interesting. I know. Maybe this is why I like this entry so much. I, I, I feel, again, put in my place and not in a good way. Uh, Brendan O'Hare mm-hmm. is winner number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that I would be, and I'm going to have to take a deep breath for this one because it's all one word. $20 monthly donation level tote bag man. That's beautiful. You did that perfectly. That is, once again. $20 monthly donation level tote bag man. Oh my god. A victory lap. Well done. <laughs> it really was. Jeff, however, is headsetter. <laughs> Both Gypsy writes are well-loved, but utterly useless in perilous situations. <laughs> as they humorously bicker, wander off topic, randomly mute, and go crackly after a couple of hours. I think, again, harsh but fair. Harsh, but yeah, like a little too harsh. We, we but... can't deny it. Is it really too harsh? Well, let's, let's be honest with ourselves here, yeah. Jeff. Well, see, this is the problem. Its harshness is only met by its fairness, because I, yeah. I absolutely couldn't disagree with the description. So, yeah. Uh, shall I, I take the next one? Uh, yes. Why don't you take the next one? Okay, Graham has a radio that breaks down and sounds crackly after an hour's use. His name is Fritz. I'll take that. I think I think that's fair. It's not getting at me personally. Mm-hmm. It's only getting at the fact that after a while, the Skype connection kind of goes weird. Yeah. Jeff is a cot's name boy. Boy the cot struggles with his function. <laughs> Rogue Trooper deserves the best pillows and mattress, but the bedding company doesn't treat their employees well. Boy refuses to give them money because of their shady practices. For months, he gets pillows from others to at least keep up with the Rogue Trooper's sleeping needs. But he isn't sure how sustainable that system is. Finally, Boy the Cod gets gifted a six-month-old bed set and reconciles his beliefs with his partner's needs. This is what I love about this. One, it is hilariously passive-aggressive. I mean, it is award-winningly passive-aggressive, which I find wonderful. Michael, I genuinely salute you. Yeah. Two, Boy the Cod is actually a cot. That's my favorite part of it. Yes. He, he commits to the joke. He's like, how can I be snarky about Jeff's Marvel boycotts? I've got it. I'll actually make him a chip that goes on a cot. Yeah. That's spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 really, the, he commits to the joke, Jeff. Oh, and so I, I, know that, I know that, let's face it, it's fairly savage towards you, but committing <laughs> to the joke really gets my, my respect. I, I'm if going... you feel bad about yourself, just consider this. You are Eric's connection to everything interesting. I know, right? That makes me feel somewhat better. Although, I think he just sort of got so excited, he didn't talk about you as specs. Um, because it's clear that it's spectacular. Not only do you, are you attached to the glasses, but I think that you probably help the person see. And I bet you can launch a dazzling, distracting light show that distracts the enemies. Cause I, I, no, I, I don't even need that, Jeff. <laughs> no, certainly not after Boy the Cot, who, <laughs> that, let me I'm tell you. I got off so lightly from Michael yeah. that I don't need that. Right, right, exactly. You're fine. You're fine. Um, and our final winner. Our, our final winner, and this is, this is tough. I, I, you know, I know one of our uh, winners was, I think, sort of uh, jockeying heavily for this. Um, so I apologize. I will have to send him an, an apologetic email, but I think we had to give it 
to Matthew Murray uh, because he actually submitted one uh, one in a comment for you. And then I encouraged him to come up with one for me. And I thought the, the thing that he came up with, which was just a throwaway, also works. Graham is, here's the thing, an electrosonic ear that can broadcast information about comics directly into Rogue Trooper's mind. That's pretty cool. I um, show back to when I couldn't stop saying, here's the thing. Um, yeah, you shouldn't really put that in the past tense, Graham. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, boy, the gods. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then when I asked for a follow-up so he could get a full entry, he mentioned the Weight Watch, a clock that confer- constantly forgets to tell you that you're running over time, which, again... I, again, a great pun. He mm-hmm. commits to it, and he just gets to dig in at us at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's very, very elegant. It's it's accurate. <laughs> it's exactly. a little bit of a harsh but fair. Yeah, harsh but harsh fair. fair. Exactly. Say what you like, Jeff. Our listeners have got our number. Oh, man. For sure. To, it's it's somewhat uncomfortable to realize the level to which they've got our number, but oh, they've man. got our number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I am forced to uh, agree. So congratulations to our winners. Thank you for being so patient. Thank you again, to uh, whatnot, uh, Brian Ruckley, who was the who is the author, I should say, of the Rogue Trooper Last Man Standing trade uh, from IDW. Uh, the artist on that is Alberto Ponticelli, and um, I will have to uh, secure some addresses and then be getting those in the mail. I want to say this week; it'll probably be next week. So, but to pull a Graham McMillan on you, it will probably be this week when you listen to the podcast or possibly last week so exactly are we living in the future or are you living in the past beautiful graham well well also it's reverse (laughs) right we're living in the past they're living in the future (laughs) beautiful and utterly wrong well i don't know i i see your no but yes no no i yeah i'm i'm 100 wrong but there's a reason i'm 100 wrong Oh, yes? I said to you before we started recording that I have been uh, reading – I've been catching up. I've mm-hmm. been reading old comics uh, recently, a, a bunch of them. Um, and one of those things that I've been reading mm-hmm. is uh, the collected edition of DC's Forever Evil spinoffs. Oh, uh, oh and if God. anything is, is going to drive you to wrongness in the brain, mm-hmm. it's specifically one of them. Forever Evil Blight, which was the crossover between Pandora, Trin- sorry, Trinity of Sin Pandora, mm-hmm. Trinity of Sin the Phantom Stranger, Justice League Dark, and Constantine. It is like 16 issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the first eh, 10 of them, say, mm-hmm. are fairly I, I, strong would be a strong term, but they're fine. Mm-hmm. And then it just keeps going. <laughs> and it's hilarious. I went in somewhat, you know, trepidatiously. I, you know, I'm not sure if this is a good idea, but why not? If getting it from the library, it's not like all I'm doing is investing my time in it. I built up a fair amount of goodwill with me. Mm-hmm. And then by just refusing to fucking stop, it's burned through all that goodwill by the time I got to the end of the book. <laughs> it was amazing. It really is something that 
you get like midway through and you're like, huh, this is holding together so much better than I thought. And in a really weird way, because I've just recently read the Alamore Swamp things. Mm. First of all, the core conceit of uh, Blight Mm -hmm. is not a million miles away from American Gothic. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it sounds like I'm damning Alan Moore with faint... No, not even damning with Alan uh, with faint praise, but just damning Alan Moore uh, by saying that the execution is also not a million miles away between the two. Mm, interesting. However, American Gothic had an ending. Mm-hmm. And Blight just doesn't. Wow. <laughs> it, it builds to nothing. Uh, and there are a number of... Well, you know, what is going to happen now? Where the... The what happens now is pretty much like, and then they walk away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. quick, come through my magical portal. Mm-hmm. But now we're dead. Now we're not. Come through my magical portal. <laughs> A fair amount of that. Uh, the conceit of Blight is that, for those who remember Forever Evil, who have not blotted it out of their brains, mm-hmm. uh, there has been, for all intents and purposes, an incursion from Earth 3, the mm-hmm. evil Earth. Uh, to the regular DC Earth. Uh, Blight basically suggests that this has thrown everything out of whack. Mm-hmm. And so the collective evil of mankind has now turned into a consciousness. Which is going to do something. I okay. say that because out of Hall of Blight, it doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it's a, we have to stop this. It'll be terrible. What's it going to do? We're not quite sure. What it actually does is it possesses a dude and gives him armor and then he fights the Justice League Dark. Why? Because they're after him. Why are they after him? Because he might do something bad. What's he going to do? Stop asking questions. (laughs) The real problem with the story is that Blight, the high concept of the story, the character that it's named after, is defeated about halfway through the book. Oh, man. And then it just keeps going. Wow. Yeah, it really, it's, it, I, I, I start off thinking, you know, this is not that bad. And the other, I also read the Argus miniseries that came out at the same time. And, oh God, another one that I've entirely forgotten. Not, oh, the Rogue, Rogue Rebellion, the, the Flash tie-in. Mm-hmm. Which is also, like, those two are fine. Mm-hmm. Fairly strong. Uh, Argus is completely hamstring, setting up a sequel that clearly will never happen. Mm-hmm. It like it, it ends on fairly much a cliffhanger. Wow. And you're sort of struck with, I've not seen any of these characters since. That was probably like a year ago. Oh man. Um but yeah, it it's but it's it's fine. It it holds together, it does its job. Rogue Rebellion is actually fairly good. Mm-hmm. And I got halfway through Blight and I was like, huh, this this is actually much better than I expected. This is great. And really by the end of it I was like, no, Wow. So how many issues was it in total? Like six or something? Blight? Blight is like 16 issues. 16 issues? Yeah, hang on. I'm, I'm trying Ooh. to find... Where is the where is the damn collected edition? Okay, here is the collected edition. It collects Justice League Dark 24 to 29, Constantine 9 to 12, Trinity of Sin Pandora 6 to 9, and Trinity of Sin Phantom Stranger 14 to 17. Hmm. So that's a lot of comics. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really is. That's like 15 issues or something. Uh, wow. Wow. So now, 
at the at the risk of, of beating a dead horse, and I apologize. There were there multiple writers. I I, I think yes. Ray Fox is two. In the, yeah. It's Ray Fox and J.M. DeMatteis, and that's it. Okay, so that's uh, relatively the, concise. I, and the the crossover is entirely coherent. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's not any moment of you know, and then they step out of the magic portal and they're in whatever right. you know. Magical Realm X, but then in the next part, they're actually in Magical Realm Y. There's none of that. It mm-hmm. flows in terms of, I won't say logic, but it's not the most logical story, but it flows in terms of coherence fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that there's ultimately no there there. Mm-hmm. I feel like they came up with the concept of what if the collective evil of humanity actually gains coherence and actually gains a consciousness of its own. Right. That's a crossover. And then they never really worked out anything beyond that. Hmm. And so it, it it's it's one of those things that you really – the momentum for the first half really keeps you going without questioning it too much. Right. In part because you think it's going to build to something. Right. And then by the time you finish it and it's not built to anything, you're like, wait, I've just realized this story was kind of about nothing. Mm. You know, let me ask you because I, I think it's interesting that you uh, you make the comparison to Alan Moore's uh, American Gothic, which makes a lot of sense to me. But it also sort of makes me think of, um, you know, I, it's not even really like I would have to say that I f- followed his work closely enough to make this this assumption stick. But isn't J.M. Dematius sort of an a kind of an anti-cathartic writer i guess in that you know sort of generally like he's not necessarily like he'll build to like super big like i'm thinking specifically of his defenders issue where it's um, that it all feels like he's building things towards climax and then the climax would be and then they talked it out and realized they both went to the same school and isn't man's inhumanity to man a terrible thing yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's pretty much the Demantius kind of like, oh, and here's Captain America and Red Skull, their final showdown. But wait, they're both like 70-year-old men. Exactly. And they're... they're both old men who yeah. just need to reconcile that the war ended a long time ago. Uh, yes, to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, I would say that he feels like the most momentum-driven writer of the two. Oh, interesting. Uh, in this. Mm-hmm. But... So I'm not sure I'd, I'd lay the blame at him, mm. but I, I totally get what you're saying. And right. interestingly enough, also, there are definitely times where his writing in this feels very much like his Defender stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just it just never comes together. One of the things there's well, there's a couple of things I noticed. One is uh, while I don't think Tomatis is particularly good at Justice League Dark, mm-hmm. um, he's very good at Phantom Stranger. Mm-hmm. It, it, I like his fan of Stranger, and he he does not shy away from the oh, it's actually Judas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he embraces that. There are specific shoutouts to Jesus in the story, for whatever better way of putting it, <laughs> um, which uh, which surprised me because I I always you know even though they put that in to the mm-hmm. mythology, I always kind of thought that they'd never really address it because. Mm-hmm. You can't really address it without it being, being really kind of ropey. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. really tough to be like, hey, remember Judas Iscariot? We made him into a superhero, you guys. But, you know, Demetrius, God bless him, goes all out. Right. He is, he is ready to do flashbacks. Oh, man, really? 
Yeah. Well, fake magic flashbacks, because, you know, it's that sort of story. Um, <laughs> the other thing is, Dematius writes, and again, this is because I've just read the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run, Dematius writes an Alan Moore Constantine. Mm. And it makes you realize that the Constantine that we all know is not Alan Moore's. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, when everyone was upset that Hell, Hellblazer was cancelled and then they, they moved the character fully into the DCU. Right. Um, there was definitely a feeling of like, we've lost the John Constantine we know and love. Right. And I think that's true. But reading Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and then this right back to back. Mm-hmm. You realize that Dematius is writing Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not the, the sorry, it's, he's writing at, uh, Alan Moore's Constantine. Mm-hmm. But it's not the Constantine that we know. Because the one in Hellblazer was nothing like the Alan Moore Constantine. Now, you, you said that, and I gotta admit, my reading of, of both Hellblazer and, uh, American Gothic is, is, Long time ago, haven't recently reread. So I do want to call you out on this. What exactly would you say are the differences? Uh, I think that the Alan Moore version mm-hmm. is more of a uh, less morally ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I think the nods towards moral ambiguity in Alan Moore's Constantine are are just that are nods, and that you're left. You're at no point in the story do you think that he's not going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And by the end of American Gothic, he is really established as the guy who will do the right thing even if it's wrong. Yes. Like, even if it's hard for him. Yeah. Uh, and I think that in Hellblazer, he is only a morally am- ambiguous character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also just the context of Constantine. Constantine and Alan Moore Swamp Thing, because of Alan Moore Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. is a character who will interact with Batman and with Mento and with... The DCU. Yes. Um, entirely comfortably. Mm. And also without cynicism. Mm. Like he just accepts it. This is what's going on. He'll be cocky, but he won't, uh, disrupt it in any way. Mm-hmm. And the Constantine that's in Hellblazer is an entirely disruptive force. And even though he never ran into these characters, there was always the feeling that if he did, he would react like he did to any authority and be a disruptive force. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that Alan Moore's Constantine is much more uh, straightforward. It's much more like the character as he's appearing today in the, in the DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and less interesting than the one that appeared in Hellblazer. Mm-hmm. E- even from the get-go. Because, I mean, there's no arguing that uh, John Constantine and Hellblazer developed during the course of the series. Mm-hmm. And, and by the end of it was a significantly more uh, nuanced character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But even at, even when uh, Jim Delano starts the series, mm-hmm. I think there's a significant shift from who the character was when he was in Swamp Thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think I think that's very true. I mean... You know, for one thing, Delano doesn't wait very long before tackling um, the idea of Constantine as sort of an inherent corrupt character. I mean, yes. there's a really crazy, as, as you may remember, there's a real crazy storyline that comes in pretty early where, for all intents and purposes, the enemy is the patriarchy, you know, and and Constantine is very much... As a figure of that, as a, as a, an emissary of that, is is a um, 
is a corrupt force. And I remember there's some sort of issue where they do a very, uh, um, the idea that he does end up being purified essentially in a way that's, you know, I would like to read again. Cause of course, part of me is like, huh, I wonder how much of that matches up now thinking about it with elements in, um, Yordorowski's El Topo come to think of it. So, um, but, but yeah, but right out of the gate, uh, Delano's very interested in the idea of Constantine as, as a corrupt figure. And then I think he pretty much leaves right after he, he has, uh, John get purified because it's, you know, 20 something issues after it, you know, and then, and then the series does a, a little bit of flailing until Garth Ennis sets in. Oh, well, you remember, Garth Ennis immediately follows Delano. Uh, and so Delano stays on to like issue 40. Yeah, you know, I, maybe I'm wrong then. Why does, cause there's, there's Gaiman and Morrison, I mean, are, are like, like, are like villains in the middle of Delano's run. Oh, okay, okay. Cause they're, he around, was, they're he around was, 25 and 26 and then he, he hangs was, out to like 40 or something? Yeah. Okay, okay, excellent. Uh, because, oh uh, god, the family man maybe was running late. There's mm-hmm. definitely one point where like a storyline is, is just yes. in trouble. Yeah, and so like I I might be misremembering, but I seem to remember it was like mid storyline mm-hmm. that you had the the Gaiman and Morrison issues. That 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 makes sense to me because of course I I was kind of like wait a minute it's it's tough because there really was again you know uh, Delano's you know it's funny I bought like just an absolute shit ton of Hellblazer issues um, from Comicsology like mm-hmm. you know. Like a year, was it two years ago? Maybe when they had like a big sale. I think pretty. They, they did it fairly recently when the when the TV show started as well. Okay, yeah, and so part of me is always kind of like, huh, I should sit down because I've sort of been enjoying kind of the digital binge reading um, that I did with like say uh, Marvel's Deathlock. Um, mm-hmm. The original, so so yeah, Constantine would be kind of worth a reread. It's interesting to me that I think that you're able to sort of parse. Um, I mean, because comparatively, although Moore did create the character, he really has done he, he very didn't few really, issues. Yeah, he yeah. didn't really touch Constantine much. Mm-hmm. It's the thing he created the character, but the character is. I mean, the character is so vague mm-hmm. and so sketchy, right? Um, it's, do you remember, you read Morrison's Doom Patrol, right? Yes. And so you get Willoughby Kipling? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did we that? Mm-hmm. Willoughby Kipling is a more drawn out character in like his three <laughs> issues of Morrison's Doom Patrol <laughs> that, than Moore really manages with Constantine in all of his appearances in Swamp Thing. And I, I don't mean that in the sense of, well, fuck Moore. I mean it in the sense of, I don't think Moore was particularly interested in developing Constantine beyond the, uh, motivator and mysterious figure who will, do this to Swamp Thing. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I would, I would take it a, a step further and say that he is being deliberately, um, he is kind of a deliberate man of of mystery. So, so it, it's it's like he wants he wants to raise a bunch of questions about uh, for you to have questions about Constantine and for answers to be pointed at. Like even even though um, you know Alan Moore, I think puts the puts sort of the the a lid on it, you know, or or, or waves it away in later interviews. He's definitely playing very heavy with with the Christ-like parallels with Constantine when he first appears. I mean, that's about his, you know. But he's also kind of like, well, it could be Jesus, or he could be Zatanna's boyfriend, 
or both. Or know? both, yeah. Yeah, so, and I think that that, I mean, that's kind of a, it seemed like he was having a lot of fun with the character, and I, I think that he sort of, I, yeah, I, I think it's very much worth pointing, under, underlining that Moore's intention was was not to give you a very strong perspective on the character, you mm-hmm. know. Um, well, yeah, and, you know, that's that's totally not, there's nothing wrong with that. And mm-hmm. the fact that he then went on to become the character that he became yes. and, and achieve the importance he became both speaks to the more success in creating, in accidentally creating a character that people wanted more of. Mm-hmm. Um, accidentally? Well, well, again, like, I'm, like I was saying, and I think you were agreeing that mm-hmm. Moore didn't really care about him that much. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think Moore cared about Chester more. I think Moore cared about... I think there are other characters that Moore cared about more. Well, That, that, he, that he gave more thought to and, and gave more personality to. At, 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 the, at the risk of being, like, a super nerd boy, and admittedly, I'm, I, as you know, I'm, I'm far more in Alan Moore's tank than, than you are, I, I would say that he just had a very strong awareness of what the story needed. I don't think it's a surprise. And again, it's not canon, but, you know, for anyone who's read Moore's Twilight of the Superheroes pitch, it's, it's not a surprise that Constantine is at the center of that, again, as a as an instigator, but it's also very much his 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 scorpion like nature um, is the closest thing that really gets a character arc in in the Twilight of the Superheroes. I mean, admittedly, it's just a very very long pitch, but that you know that character does have movement to it. So I, I think Moore's interested. I just also think that he. Um, he moves the direction of the Swamp Thing stories in a way like that, that character, that character doesn't do him any good. Yeah. In, in, in a way, in a way, strangely enough to focus on the title character. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. And also I, I, you, your mention of Twilight, the superheroes also uh, reminds me, I think Moore saw Constantine as not as a character that you get to know, mm-hmm. but as a character who comes in and instigates something and then leaves. He, he is uh, mm-hmm. he is intentionally a, a a mysterious character who basically come in and start some shit, right? And and so you don't stick with them, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit, a little bit like the um, the sort of uh, you know, like the Phantom Stranger or some of the other characters that he kind of follows in the tradition of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? very much. Um, although, all that said. He was also he did know perfectly well that DC was going to do a spin-off title featuring the character and did get Jamie Delano the job. So That's true. But you know <laughs> But where in that process I don't think I don't think that that was I could be wrong, but I don't think that that was something that he had pitched and developed and then inserted, you know, um Constantine into Swamp Thing. I think it was more like Oh no, I I, I think I, I could be wrong. You you were there, Jeff. But uh, <laughs> as, as a very old person. But, but was it not that basically this came about because a people were responding so positively to Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, and they were like, "Let's do more of that." And yes. B, Constantine was a character that people responded to when exactly. he showed up. Exactly. It's not like he was. It was a backdoor pilot where he was like, "I'm going to come up with this character." Exactly. I just want to clarify. As far as I know, it's more the former than the la- the latter. He's not. He's not some sort of Gary Seven, you know. So, um, 
for that old school, extra old school bonus reference. I was going to say, well, good job. <laughs> Gary Seven, who no one picked up on apart from John Byrne. Oh, God. Right. Well, didn't wasn't there that series of like Star Trek novels like that? You know, the, the, the there almost certainly was right, exactly. <laughs> but no, there was like a specific like the Clone Wars series or something that basically filled in like the history that focused on Khan and Khan's backstory and tied Gary Seven into it and sort of looped all the Star Trek, all of the Star Trek backstory got looped into sort of a three, four or four book series or something like that. Uh, I, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> right. Okay. I have absolutely not, I will be very surprised if there is not a series of Star Trek novels right. that has done a lot with Gary Seven. Right. Or at least one that has tried to do a lot with Gary Seven. Right. And I, 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 that sounds bitchier than it's meant to be because I am a <laughs> big fan of Star Trek novels, as yes. I'm sure you know. Oh, yes. That's and why I, when I mentioned it, I half expected you to be to know. I wasn't. Yes, to be like, oh, it was blah blah, blah 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, no, I I I I love them. It's just I I'm not aware of those. Mm-hmm. And my my Star Trek novel interest lies in different directions, Jeff. <laughs> Don't get me started. I'm so tempted to get you started because I'm so not sure what I'm going to be saying about comic <laughs> books this week. So I'm like, go on, Graham, go on. Like, well, what everyone wants to know is you should be reading the Star Trek Vanguard series, which is a recontextualization of the original series of television shows with more of a modern eye towards gender diversity. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> I know, even, even though I said it in this voice, it actually kind of is. Um, yeah, and, and it was, yeah, it's a, it's a fun little, it's like six books or something, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a fun little, it's as if someone was like, what if we want to try and do Mad Men to Star Trek? Oh, interesting. And then someone else went, well, that's a terrible idea, but it's not entirely a terrible idea. Let's <laughs> see what we can do with it. Right. Huh. Interesting. So, uh, uh, is, does it use the original characters or is it like one of those books that creates like a, a it's, whole it's, 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 it creates a whole thing. It's, okay. it's, it takes place on, uh, like a space station that the Enterprise visits in the first book. Ah. And then they're like, and let's just stay with the space station for the future. <laughs> but it's one of those fun series. And I, I, I'm a big fan of this in, in continued narratives where they both make the, really lampshade the plot developments before they happen Mm -hmm. and then completely fuck with you by doing something else or doing it much earlier than you expect Mm. and so it's 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 like like a six or eight book series Mm -hmm. but by the time you get to the final book Mm -hmm. they have pretty much gotten rid of all of the main characters wow and they're like okay let's just deal with with the rest of the plots now that we have you know killed off half the main cast already nice well, you know, and so that that sort of thing I find very interesting because you're like, you know, well, whatever happens, you know, Captain Blah 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 is going to be fine. Right. And then you turn the page and it's like, and then Captain Blah 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 died. <laughs> and you're like, oh, shit. Okay, then. <laughs> Where the hell is this going to go next? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. very much. And, mm-hmm. it, it's, and it's one of the things that you can do when you are dealing with uh, a continued narrative that is taking place within a universe which where you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, but you play that familiarity against the reader. Because mm-hmm. if you follow Star Trek, everyone in Star Trek lives forever. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, the fact that none of the crew of the Enterprise ever have anything bad happen to them, apart from Spock, who then gets fucking reborn? You know, you're like, well, everyone's safe. Right. And so if you go in thinking, 
you know, everyone I'm starting with this with will make it to the end. Mm-hmm. And then you systematically go, he's dead. She's dead. She's insane. She's just been blown up. He's dead. You know, it really does send you enough into a tailspin mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, I actually have no idea where you're going with this now. Right, right. Hmm. And I, w- I wish comic books did the same thing. I, uh, actually, that leads me on to the, uh, the other thing that I've been rereading en masse. Okay. Which is, or re-reading, I should say, en masse. Um, Suicide Squad. The, the new 52 Suicide Squad. It's, it's uneven, and yet when you read it, when you read the collections, I, I've read like five of them. Like in a short time that I have, like in a week. Um, it's, it's really, it's enjoyable. Uh, part of it, the reason it's so enjoyable is that it's, it gets better. It starts with Adam Glass and then it goes to Alish Cott, which is the peak. But even Matt Kent's run isn't that bad. Oh, good. I, I, Alish's stuff is by far the peak of the series. Oh. And it, it really is sort of very depressing that it lasts like four issues and then it's done. Right. Because he brings up a lot of things in terms of interpersonal relations. We're like, oh, I hadn't realized that. That's really interesting. I'm going to read more about that. And then Matt Kent is completely derailed by Forever Evil. And this is actually what started me on rereading Forever Evil. Because I was like, oh, that happened. I forgot about that. Um, I really did. I forgot Forever Evil even happened. Wow. I, I read the stories and I was like, oh, yes, there was that story, wasn't there? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, there's a lot of interesting ideas in the Suicide Squad, in the modern Suicide Squad series. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where, and I've not been reading the current series at all. Mm-hmm. But part of me is like, there's a, there's so much potential in there that you'd have to really try to fuck it up and make a boring book. Not that that doesn't mean that right. you're yeah, trying. It won't end up happening, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, there, there's it's all told one of at least the most interesting of the New 52 series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is a shame that it kind of got all bullocked up, so... Um... Uh, and it's fascinating to me, too, because I don't think of you as being sort of a very... Anto, so, yeah, anti-hero, uh, supervillain type. Leader. I love the original. I love mm-hmm. the uh, not the original. I love the Ostrander series. Yes, what? Right. Deeply loved, and in particular the there's a, a part. I don't know if you read it, but there's a part where essentially the government cuts all ties. Mm-hmm. Waller and the group go freelance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I that's that's my jam, Jeff. Mm, I think that's far too late in there. I I don't know why I gave up on Suicide Squad, but I only made it like about twenty. 30 issues, like not even 30 issues in, I think. Yeah, I want to say this happens around like issue 40 something. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and it's great. <laughs> I mean, I just I just loved it. It, mm-hmm. it was, I don't know what it was about it, but it, it hit me at the wrong time, at the right time. And I was just like, this is, this is exactly the comic I want to read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have incredibly strongly fond memories of that, uh, which gets me over, you're right, the, the, what might otherwise be my anti-hero interest. Although that said, I also found myself surprisingly enjoying Charles Sewell's Thunderbolts. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, Daniel Way's not so much, but mm-hmm. Charles Sewell's, I, I really, there's there's a certain sense of humor that I really got drawn in by. Uh, I don't know if you've read that in Marvel Unlimited. No, I have not. Yeah, it's it's, it's again, surprisingly strong. Yeah, so, I have to say yeah. Thunderbolts is one of those series that is kind of earmarked for like a big Marvel – overdue for a big Marvel Unlimited run read-through for me, you know, 
because I've read so little of it over the course of its run, and yet, A, the stuff that I've read I've really liked, and B, just sort of, there have been a lot of very talented writers um, working on the title, and, and usually getting a period, a chance to do what they want with the title for a good chunk of time uninterrupted. You know. Have you, have you read much of it? Like, have you read Jeff Parker's run? Because Jeff Parker's run is great, <laughs> right? Which I know a lot of people love. And again, that's kind of on my. I would say that I swear to God, I've read maybe, and this is bad. It's like I've read maybe nine issues of Thunderbolts, maybe six issues, like total. And so, honestly, it's probably like two of Busiek, two I, I, of I super Ellis. love the Busiek run as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's really a – he did such a great job. That first issue is just so strong. And, yeah, so it's kind of like between that and – I even liked Ellis's work. I think that's Ellis and Diodato. Uh, and yeah. then I jumped on that and then off it. And then I think I, of course, heard good stuff about Parker's run. And, again, I think I only dipped my toes in, like, you know – and read like an issue or two and was like, oh, this is great. I should check out more of this and then kind of flatlined. The The problem is, well, I'm not a big fan of the Ellis run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a little too much of uh, the faux nihilism mm-hmm. that was going around Marvel at the time. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like there was, there was a sort of a, a very teenage level of, we're sticking it to the man. The man's corrupt, but we're telling the man stories. <laughs> See, that, that, I did not like at all. Well, I can see why you don't like that, but I'm but I'm also sort of like there are people for whom I think like if there's anyone for who who can basically do that sort of faux nihilism relatively well, it's I think it's Ellis. You know what I oh, mean? Oh no, like, sure. Very he, in his he did it as well and as convincingly as anyone, but yeah. it is not something I have any interest in reading. Mm. Um, and yeah. but Ellis did his run, and then he's followed by I want to say Andy Diggle, uh, and Andy Diggle's not on the book for a long time, and it might not be Diggle. I might might be like blaming by by proxy, and I apologize if so. But whoever follows Ellis and comes before Parker is just not good, right? And I may have stuck for an issue of that, and then and then dove off, and maybe that's it. Maybe and so it makes the start of Parker's run where he's kind of picking up the pieces. Like, a little rough. So I wouldn't be surprised if, like, you read a really early issue and you're like, ah, I don't know about this. Yeah. Because he really is like, I am sorting shit out, you guys. The last guy left things in a terrible mess. Right, exactly. But when, when he gets going, um, it's it's really, it's fun, mm-hmm. is the thing. It's very much Parker doing straight-up adventure, but having a lot of fun with it. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's really good. And then, and that to then turns into Dark Avengers, which is far better than any Dark Avengers comic should have been. Oh, yeah, that's true. Actually, I think <laughs> I read like a trade of that, and that's, is that, that's Bendis, I think, right? And... No, 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 no. That's, the, that's the first Dark Avengers series. <laughs> oh, okay. So the okay. second Dark Avengers series is a continuation of Thunderbolts. Mm. It's Parker mm. and, uh, shit, Neil Edwards, maybe? Uh, it bits Parker writing. And it's the characters from the second team of Dark Avengers, because the second team of Dark, the first team of Dark Avengers was pretty much the Thunder, Alice's Thunderbolts. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, like, just teleported over to a new series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, again, that's one of those weird things of, yeah, I, it, it sort of feels like there are a few years there where 
Marvel tried sort of unsuccess like Ellis for a guy who didn't write a lot for Marvel was hugely influential during oh, that was, period. Was and yeah. in large part I think because he was hugely influential to Bendis, mm-hmm. who was hugely influential. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bendis was really interested in in taking a lot of the ideas and the tone from Ellis. And then of course later on you you know, there's a good chunk of of the 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 Marvel people who really came through, if not if not Ellis's direct recommendation, certainly were you know close to him during the Weft days and what have you. So. Yeah, but if you think about like the, you know that includes like Kieran Gillen, and mm-hmm. another thing I've been rereading lately is Kieran Gillen's Journey into Mystery, mm-hmm. which is so very un Ellis. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and they have so, and, so right. strongly un Ellis. Absolutely no, and and I would I would argue of course that Fraction, who of course. You know, also came up through the WEF ranks. They both definitely have their own voice and their own uh, ideas. You yeah. Know? But I also, but I, I just mean influential in the chat in the in the thing of I would not be surprised if he vouchsafed for them and you know played some role in them getting work there. Could be. Oh wrong, sure, yeah. You know, well, but, uh, yeah, but if or if not, oh, there's the barking. There we go. Uh, what I was going to say was. I wouldn't be surprised if if Ellis did, you know, say it's good there with me. Mm-hmm. But but that's the way it's always worked. Oh no, no 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 agree. I I I mean nothing other than just the idea of apart from Bendis being interested in kind of the tone, like being interested enough in Ellis's Thunderbolts that he was kind of like, hey, I really want to sort of I want to do this, and Ellis being like, yeah, these guys are right. I just mean that. That he that for for someone who had remarkably few you know names on you know credits on the books during that period, Ellis is oh he, he was amazingly influential. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's kind of fascinating to to see just to what extent, and I think it also shows in the ultimate line as well. Mm-hmm. To what extent that Ellis. Ellis's fingerprints are over things that Ellis didn't really touch. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a real, it's yeah, it's a very strange, and it, it kind of shifts for me from a very Mark Miller time mm-hmm. at Marvel to a sort of Ellis time in response. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, there's definitely a, a, <laughs> did, did you hear that? Yes. <laughs> That was that was my dog Gus um, howling at me. He actually just stood up on the table and howled at me and then jumped oh, off. Man. That was hilarious. Um, what I was saying was, there was definitely a period where Marvel was very uh, British takes on Americana influenced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Civil War and all that is very. Mark Miller talks about American politics, which he doesn't really know that much about. Right. Right, right, right. And then you have, for better or worse, a period that is very influenced by Warren Ellis is very cynical about the American abuse of power. And so you do have this this really extended period where Marvel, which at its heart I think is a, is a very American narrative, is hooked around... Uh, British readings of that narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because I, I, I almost feel as if 
there's a degree to which, um, and and this is this is going to put it to put it in the poorest terms possible. The 2000 AD tradition of satire has allowed. Uh, if you degrade, if if you basically dilute the satire out of it, what you get is a remarkable ability to talk out of both sides of the mouth at once. You know, and yeah, yeah. and that is very much the core to the approach of Marvel, Marvel during that time, and and arguably still this time, which is kind of this weird like, oh, we don't trust the man slash, but we love the man. You know what I mean? Oh, I, okay. Do you think Marvel doesn't trust the man anymore? Because I think Marvel has almost entirely lost the We Don't Trust the Man, with the exception of maybe the X-Books. I think Marvel is in love with the man and is making the man Valentine's cards. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would have to say that that is... That is I know, when it comes to, like, the Marvel movies, holy shit! Right. Well, yes and no. I mean, again, that's the thing, that it is surprising in a way. I mean, I, I still think one of the reasons why... Winter Soldier for me was enjoyable as it was and in a way as unexpected as it was is because it takes the sort of very blind rubber stamping of approval of the government and and turn and in, and and turns it on its back it turns it into a kind of uh, paranoid state that Captain America is at the middle of. And well, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, because what it replaces it with is exactly the same thing. Oh, yeah, but that, and that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it right. ends up. So, it's Winter Soldier at its heart is that ideologue is bad, but this ideologue is good. Yeah, but the, I, I feel like that's always the case. I mean, Marvel is always, well, I don't know about always, but let's just say not only is that endemic to the sort of the current status quo of Marvel, but I I feel, you know, and perhaps unsurprisingly, that ever since the introduction, you know, of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the Marvel Universe, there is a uh, very double-sided thing that grew, particularly in the 80s and 90s, because I feel like even in the 70s, for the most part, even oh, when Sh- you had Shield, people, Shield, Shield was good. Shield, exactly. Shield was good, even when the rest of the government couldn't be trusted. Sure, yeah. And and yeah. then you get essentially a series of reversals with that, where Shield is almost always bad and compromised, and then is almost always overthrown and replaced with a better version of Shield. Well, but that, that that's just it. Always it's, becomes it's, compromised. It's, it's almost never Shield itself is problem. It's almost always yeah. Shield has been compromised by bad guys. Yes, and the idea of Shield is great. So let's get back to that idea. Yes. And that's my problem with the Winter Soldier as any sort of serious critique of of the culture mm-hmm. is that it doesn't critique the culture. It says, "Oh, look, these bad guys have got in charge. Let's just beat up the bad guys." Mm-hmm. Well... There, there's it, it. It does. It doesn't address and and. The comics have have gone like a million miles in the opposite direction, where it's yes. like everything should be part of the shield. Right. But there's if Marvel, if if the Winter Soldier as a movie was intended to launch a period of being aware of the worship of uh, the military industrial complex, mm-hmm. 
then that has been massively undercut by everything that has followed. Well, yes, but I but I do feel like the people who put it together, the people who you know, it was put together to be an effective film. Like I don't really think that they could control where the Marvel Universe was going to go. And and how do but, I put it? Uh, I I don't uh, think of I don't wait a minute because I do th- I I think that considering how heavily the 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 Marvel Cinematic Universe has at least from what you've told me walked almost everything from the Winter Soldier back it sort of makes me think that it was kind of like well this is what we want to do for the scope of the movie and or kind of like these are the the specific whether screenwriter or the directing team were kind of like yeah we we want to put this concept forward because by the by the end of the winter soldier in theory it changes the status quo in a way that is sort of supposed to depower shield and depower the idea of quote unquote secrecy and then of course you know that that more or less gets completely overwritten uh, uh pretty much immediately from what you've told me so i you know i'm i'm not saying that i i think that that I'm not saying that I don't even – I would be surprised if the Winter Soldier was made with the people in, in it being like, oh, yeah, we're going to totally change the nature of the Marvel Universe or the nature of how S.H.I.E.L.D. is perceived in the Marvel Universe. They're just kind of like, this is what we want to say that we believe. And one of the things that's tough about the Marvel Universe is the nature to which what – just like and, and Marvel in the comics, what Marvel says that it wants to believe and what it actually indicates that it believes are two different things, I think. And and those things are because I feel like even in the Marvel universe, Nick Fury is basically counted as the guy that you absolutely cannot trust, except you, of course, you can totally trust him. Have you read Original Sin? Uh, I'm like. Five, I think it was five issues into it. Thanks to the, I got to the the man on the wall issue uh, through the unlimited app. So I think there's another issue or two that's come out since then. I haven't read, but but it strikes me as exactly that kind of message. You know, the idea of it's, like, yeah, it's 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 fascinating mm-hmm. to see how it just it can't choose a side with mm-hmm. Nick Fury, right? Uh, that it is, it really plays the he's a terrible man doing terrible things but god damn it somebody's got to do terrible yes. things right card hard yeah um which is a narrative i i really don't like i i find right. i think it's it's cowardly yeah and i and i feel that there's a lot of marvel that that that, has that does that. it yeah yeah, yeah. I, no i i, I completely agree of that yeah um but it's it really like the the distance to which it goes to try and convince you that Nick became a bad guy, but he wasn't really a bad guy. He just bad, did bad things for the right reasons, but somebody had to do them. God damn it. And aren't we glad we had a real hero like Nick Fury? Right. Is like really left a bad taste in my mouth by the time I finished the series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's such an odd series and such an odd send off for Nick Fury, especially mm-hmm. because. Like the the way that you'll see in the final issue, um, their 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 payoff to Nick Fury, mm-hmm. and then the this is what actually happened, is is even within the he's a bad he's a good man making the bad choices narrative mm-hmm. is cowardly uh, and and is 
it, it's as if the entire thing they were like, okay, we've come up this this is what's going on, this is the plot, and then when Jason Aaron sat down to write it, he was like, I I just can't commit to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I know this has to happen because you know we agreed on it and. There's there's now seventy two crossovers leading up to it, but I I can't no pun intended I can't pull the trigger. Can't pull the trigger on the idea of of Fury as as bad guy or the the flip side of it. Uh, I don't want to say because I don't want to ruin it for you. Uh, you can ruin it for me. I, I I'll uh, read it. It can't it can't it he can't go Nick Fury's a murderer. So he basically creates a scenario where the Watcher is is committing suicide by fury. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cowardly. I mean, th- there is... You know? Yeah. Like, so you have scenes where Nick Fury is basically like, I don't want to do this! <laughs> you know? And it's right. just... Like, it, it, it it's... Yeah. Originalson really falls apart at the end. Like, it really dramatically falls apart well, but if you if you if you made it to like issue five right then i kind of want to say jeff you've gotten everything good out of it <laughs> well yeah except i will probably follow it through because even um, yeah, frankly, it's, it's by the time it is you free. get to five right exactly even by the time you get to five you realize that um it's it to me it's really interesting i haven't read that many of the the crossovers but aaron's story just as a story is it's all over the fucking show. Yeah, it's just it's it's kind of like an endless series of red herrings. Um, and so oh, by the everything, th- not just who. Not oh just yes, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Red everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's yeah. It, it's it's stunningly all over the place, um, and completely fails to bring it together. Like mm-hmm. in this second half, amazingly so. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it, it's. The, the second half of Original Sin is just because again the first half you, you're there's a sense of like wow if he can pull this off that's great mm-hmm. and then somewhere along the line you're like oh he's not going to be able to and then he just almost doesn't even make the attempt yeah you know and I so get... you're left feeling you know very very not just unfulfilled but but like what the fuck just happened right it's it's a really interesting comparison contrast with Fraction's fear itself. You know, because I feel like Fraction's Fear itself was um, a mess from Jump Street. Like, right from the get-go, it looked like it was off on the wrong foot, and it just continued to to get worse from there. Aaron's, I think, in part because Aaron... Aaron has a lot of good... I, I would argue he had a lot more goodwill than Fraction did. Oh, I think so too. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I really... I was like two issues into it, and I'm like, oh, he may pull this off. And even when he goes wacky and brings in the orb, I'm like, okay, that's kind of a... like. like I, I didn't see that coming, but that's kind of cute. Right. It's cute, but there is just a little bit of a like, oh, okay, this is wacky, and also kind of the, uh, adds to that like, oh, this could kind of end up going anywhere. Exactly. Um, this could be a disaster, but it won't be. It's Jason Aaron, right? At least that was my thought. Right. Well, no, but I mean, yeah, for me, I was kind of yeah. I didn't necessarily take that for granted, but I did think that I was kind of. For me, I felt like, oh, Aaron's actually able to to hit the notes, seem cohesive, and again, his swerves didn't feel they they it the construction the level of craft i thought was just better than fear itself out of the gate the problem is is that means that when it falls apart it actually has some heights to fall from and you're just like 
what the fuck? And and I think there's a real how do I put it? Because there's such a um, to make it seem like a murder mystery for the first two thirds of it. There's this real necessity of having to put Nick Fury kind of at the center of things so he's not the object of suspicion, but it, it means you can only pay so much attention to him as a character, like that that Aaron and the creators can, such that when you pull out the whole man-on-the-wall stuff, it is a... For the series itself, I think it's a wet fart. Maybe if you're following the the whole degree of of sort of ambivalent Nick Fury love that has been going on in Marvel for like a decade at that point, it seems like a fine capper, I think. Well, but it's also like it's so out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean it like really it's, is. it's so dramatically out of nowhere. Yeah. On every level. Right. You know, not just Nick Fury has been leading a seeker's double life as you know, super spy in space, but that's not the, you've never seen the real Nick Fury because the real Nick Fury has been growing old for the last few years because his infinity formula ran out and you've always been seeing LMDs. Right. And, oh, and by the way, he also killed the Watcher. Right. And he's also orchestrating the uh, investigation into the murder and trying to get his successor at the same time. Now, it's all just like, what? Right. Right. There's so, been this cosmic spaceman all along that we've never mentioned before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's apparently not doing a great job because of all the things that have threatened the Earth in this meantime. <laughs> right. But right, exactly. that's because he's not focused on those because he's focused on the other things which are much scarier. Trust us. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it's it, just yeah. – it's – it's here, here is the ultimate damning statement on Original Sin. The identity crisis was a better – Yes. Yeah, it's tough, but it's really... Identity crisis is mm-hmm. better. It's mm-hmm. a sad thing about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it makes sense, because Original Sin is so clearly working in the, in the identity crisis footsteps. You know, to me, sure, it's so uh, but it's also modeled on it. Identity crisis, for the fact that it's a complete mess... Yes. ...has the common sense to be a relatively limited and tight complete mess. Mm-hmm. And asks one question and answers it. And one point five questions, but sure, sure. I mean, what is the what is the point five? Well, to me, the, the, the mind wipes. Yeah, the mind wipe is like a is kind of the big deal. It so ends up overshadowing everything else, and then ends up being the takeaway point that kind of drags out of identity crisis. That it. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I can see that. You know what I mean? So, but other than that, I, I'm I'm strongly inclined to agree with you. That, that for the most part it does it does that nice and know. and an infinity uh, identity crisis rather mm-hmm. offers leaves you thinking that it actually was a comic that was about the murder mystery mm-hmm. for all the for all the mind wipe stuff yeah that it, it ultimately was a comic that was like I'm going to kill someone off I'm going to set up a murder mystery and then I'm going to solve the murder mystery right. whereas by the time you finish original sin you've mm-hmm. almost forgotten the watcher was murdered yes. Right. No, it'd be it'd be as if Identity Crisis started off with the you know the murder, then got so um, distracted by the mind wipes that it was about nothing but the mind wipes at the end, and you were kind of thinking, but wait, wasn't there like kind of a? I seem to recall there was some other reason why I started reading this book. You know, yeah, Original Sin is fascinating to me because it is. Uh, 
such a failure and such a um I don't know uh, again but it but it also does sort of underline that Marvel's got a very I don't know it's like a very queasy relationship um I think you know Nick Fury is kind of the I don't want to say he's the bad dad but it's very it's very much the idea of like you know the end of original sin is like we love our bad dad you know what I mean? Like there is ultimately. Oh, loyalty. wait, wait, wait till you get the end of the book, Jeff. Oh, really? Am I am I off in that then? Uh, no, just wait till you get to the end. Okay. It's it's yeah. You're only in issue five. There is wacky ass. Uh, <laughs> if you wait, if you look at Nick Fury as the father, mm-hmm. there are some crazy father issues at play mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. the second half of that series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just. Man, it's yeah. I I honestly thought you were going to say that Marvel had a complicated relationship with events, which I think is is also true. Oh, um, yeah. I mean that I think that is true too. But I mean, it's complicated in the sense that they're going to happen whether anyone wants to do them or not. I mean, is or is there some other sort of complication that you're thinking of there? It just, I feel like. I feel like Marvel is so reliant on events. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of the last time Marvel did an event that actually worked in, in entirety. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, there there's two parts of, like, I don't know, how you consider, quote, unquote, when it worked. You know what I mean? Because there, there are certainly things that, uh, you know, I feel like House of M worked as far as sales went, but it... I mean, that was a terrible event from the get-go. I mean... Oh, I, no, I'm, I'm not even thinking about sales. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, creatively. I'm thinking about a story that did what it set out to do. Mm-hmm. I, at this point, I'm not even caring about did the fans like it. Right. A, well, story, that, I think a story that worked mm-hmm. in terms of its own intent. I, I seem to think a lot of people felt that way about World War Hulk, actually. Um, but I didn't. I didn't read it, so I can't actually. I can't. I can't speak to it. You know. Mm-hmm. But um, but other than that, there were a lot of people who feels that Civil War was. It was successful at just about <laughs> every level, except for you know people with taste. I think you know what I mean. Like I just. <laughs> <laughs> it was successful in the Mark Miller level. Um, yeah, maybe. But even mm-hmm. then, like if that's if that's the last one, then that's a long time ago, Jeff. Well, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, they've had, but again, there's that idea of like people. If you, I mean, the secret invasion work for me, no. I felt like I, but I, I mean, that's just very much me. There might be other people. I, I, I yeah, I guess because part of me is like, well, I feel it didn't fail in the same way that like original Sin or Fear itself did. Yes. No, I mean, I think one of the really? things that I, is I, fascinating, I, I, right? I don't think Infinity really failed in the same way that Secret Invasion or Fear itself did. Oh, interesting. Uh, that original Sin of Fear itself did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it just ended up being, uh, like, overwrought and dull in the end, I guess. But that's... 
but that's not the same as, as no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Which, which fail, like yes. which, which do not work on their own terms. Yes. You know, cause it, it, say what you like about Infinity. It did not reek of desperation by the time you finished it. Yeah, I don't, I, and so for me, it's, I, I'm as, as somebody who basically quit reading Marvel events, Boy, halfway the through civil, halfway through civil war, like I didn't. I mean, there was the Did boycott. You, you never but... even finished. Civil no, I war. never finished. I never finished buying civil war. I think I, I. But you've I read, read it, right? I read it in the store, yeah. But I didn't. But I was just literally like, I'm not going to support this with my money. I'm just not. Um, and of course, I, you know, at that time, Hibbs was like, "Oh, you'll be back for next issue." I'm like, "Nope." course at that time i was working in a comic book store so i could just pick it up and read it but um but even still uh, i mean you know uh, that then went on to i think i read the first issue of world war hulk and i sort of liked the art and everything but i was like yeah i don't really need to do this secret invasion i think was the first issue i think house of m might have been one of those that i read because again i i think that was Bendis's first event, and I was kind of like, "Oh yeah, Brian." You know, I was still buying Avengers at that point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Come like, on, Bendis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, exactly. He's not that bad. Yeah, and I and... okay. I'm now looking down the listing of Marvel's events. Mm-hmm. So there's House of M in 2005, Annihilation in 2006, 2007, Civil War 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. World War Hulk 2007, mm-hmm. Annihilation Conquest, mm-hmm. Messiah Complex, Secret Invasion, War of Kings, Messiah War, mm-hmm. Utopia, Necrotia. Fall of the Hulks, Siege, Realm of Kings, Second Coming, The Thanos Imperative, World War Hulks, that's plural, that's different right. from World War Hulk. Right. It's like Alien and Aliens, <laughs> Curse of the Mutants, Shadowland, Chaos War, Age of X, Fear Itself, Schism, Spider Island, Dying Wish, Avengers vs. X-Men, talking about things that just didn't quite work. Age of Ultron, talking about things that really didn't work. Um, Extermination, Infinity, Battle of the Atom, The Trial of Jean Grey, Goblin Nation. (laughs) Whoever is editing Wikipedia, it really needs to decide on what a crossover event is. Right. Because Goblin Nation ran in one comic. Goblin Nation was a storyline in one comic. Oh, okay. Revolutionary War, Original Mm -hmm. Sin, Death of Wolverine, Axis. Yeah, because people hated Axis too, right? Uh, Oh, I think people really loathed Axis. I I think Axis... I think Axis was like the worst reviewed of all of them. Yeah, I think there's a lot of competition for it, but as far as I can tell, I've never seen so many people say so many negative things with so few positive... Oh, I think it's okay. Comments. Yeah, I still remember Axis got like bad reviews in Newsarama and CBR, and yeah. that's when you know you're not doing yeah, a good yeah, call. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like nobody likes your shit at that point. You know, it's yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of those recent ones, because again, I feel like there was a point at which these things became mandated by uh, the sales department. I would argue, at least again, most of that, uh, the vast majority of it, I haven't read. I would say, trying to gauge from the way people talk about it, that I would say that Spider Island was among the more successful of the recent events. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. You know, I would I would say that I that's still wish it had been called Spider Manhattan, but okay. It's sp- true. It should have been called, like, I think everyone agrees it should have been called Spider Manhattan. Spider Manhattan is, is a million times better than Spider Island. Um but uh, yeah, I just I don't know, you know, and and on but honestly, the the strongest ones I would say are Civil War and uh, 
World War Hulk, and also Annihilation. I think Annihilation was ex- ended up being extraordinarily successful for what it set out to do. Oh, yeah, and, and I, it, it created a, a franchise for Marvel. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's it arguably, I would say, apart from Civil War, I would say that it's the most successful of, of all in that regard. So... Yeah, I don't know though, but I mean that, that. I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of shit in there. Some people. How do you feel about the trial of Jean Grey? I sort of felt like that sort of got positively. Some. Uh, I remember. I I'm not even sure I finished it. People who. It, I. It was definitely the point where I was like, I really like Brian's uh, Avenger, uh, Brian's X Men, mm-hmm. and kind of went, or do I? Mm, interesting. How about Battle of the Atom? Because I heard a lot of – I think I felt like there was a lot of goodwill for that. I liked it. a lot of parts of it, uh, mm-hmm. but ultimately I didn't like enough of it to really like it, if that Say makes that. sense. Yeah, but no, but, uh, really but not unlike my Diamond with Faint Praise earlier on of of uh, some of the DC stuff of, of Justice League right. Blight. Um, it's – it's professional, like it, it does its job. It's just that I'm not particularly. I I never got invested in what it was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some smart moves in it, but there's also there's I it's almost too much in it to make me care. Mm-hmm. Like when you go, you're like double bluff, triple bluff, quadruple bluff. You know, the <laughs> stuff right in there. You're like, well, fuck this. Right. Right. Hmm. Uh, and how, out of curiosity, DC would you? DC has far less events, right? Uh, sure, because I mean, I might be wrong, but after the New Fifty Two, I want to say they pretty much went cold turkey until Trinity War, and that's two years in. Uh, I I would say I want to say that's probably true. Of course, the Trinity War is big, and then of course it leads into forever. Well, but, evil. well Trinity War was was big and not big at the same time. It was only six issues long. Yes, and it was only tied into what two books or three books or three something. books. Yeah, it's so, two issues of three books, right? Um, and so, you know that uh, it was big in that it launched Forever Evil, which was <laughs> hilariously overblown. Yeah, um, like much much bigger than it should have been. Let's let's look at what. Uh, Wikipedia says, seeing as that's what we went for Marvel. Right. It suggests that after Flashpoint, there was Night of the Owls, the Batman crossover. Then oh, The yeah. Culling, which was a Teen Titans and Legion Lost crossover. Mm-hmm. Then Rise of the Third Army, which is Green Lantern storyline. Then Rot World, which was a Swamp Thing and Animal Man crossover. Right. Death of the Family, another Batman family crossover. Hell on Earth, the Superman family crossover. Throne of Atlantis, a Justice League and Aquaman crossover. Wrath of the First Lantern, another Justice League crossover, Batman Zero Year. Mm-hmm. Trinity War Forever Evil, Lights Out, which was a Green Lantern crossover. Gothtopia, mm-hmm. which is a Batman crossover. Mm-hmm. Superman Doomed, which is staggeringly messy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, really, like I've read, I want to say at this point, I've read all of those issues and still I'm not quite sure what happened in the story. <laughs> it's, it's the, uh, it's the original sin in terms of like, needlessly complicating right uh, a, a storyline mm-hmm. uh, Uprising which is a Green Lantern crossover again Godhead which is another Green Lantern crossover well if you take out the Green Lantern crossovers you're left with nothing well and the Batman crossovers and the Batman's crossover yeah. but that's it yeah so it's basically keeping to the families so yeah in terms of line wide crossovers you have Forever Evil and that's it wow okay yeah that's which is kind of 
wacky. Well, I think in a way that was sort of a, a sensible choice, of course. Um, you know, how do I put it? Well, like, is it so? Because, you know, you've, has, I don't feel it's done DC many favors necessarily. Uh, well, how do I put it? I feel, and this could, I could be mistaken, is that I feel that DC would have sunk their own battleship that much more quickly if they had added line-wide crossovers on top of everything else they were doing wrong. I mean, as it is... Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I mean, as it is, DC... The DC New 52 seemed to sort of suffer from, I think, many of the hallmarks of a failed event, even when it wasn't undergoing an event. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it really... The, the, the... Yeah, it's the suffer from the homogeny of of voice. Yeah, homogeny of voice, arbitrary last minute rewrites, you know, sudden departure of talent, the idea that the, it's being steered by some sort of mandate rather than any sort of individual creative passions, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I would it's, say it, that and what is interesting is of all those crossovers that mm-hmm. I just listed, like the non Basically everything that's not for every evil, the smaller crossovers. Yeah. They all are driven by by a creative by mm-hmm. a creative voice. Yeah. You know, it's Scott Snyder or it's Jeff Johns. Right. Right. <laughs> in almost every respect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and, and apart from a couple where it's Scott Lobdell and, right. and you can tell. Um <laughs> But I'm not sure like I've I've read the majority of these comics, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are driven by by a title, mm-hmm. you know, are driven by Snyder's Batman or driven by Lobdell's Superman or are driven by Johns' Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure are any better than the ones that are editorially mandated. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So my thing, and I could be wrong, is I feel – it. At least with the Bat books, I honestly feel that that is – that's like a two-stage rocket. You know, it's like Scott Snyder has a story that he wants to tell, and then the Bat Books editor is basically great. We're going to bring everyone into it. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. And yeah. I don't. Well, I, I mean, don't that, think that definitely happens in like zero year, which is yes. said five years in the past in order to get it away from everything else. And all of a sudden, they're like, "We get the stories of everyone five years in the past." <laughs> right. Exactly. And they'll all be in Gotham. Right. Like, really. <laughs> right, exactly. So I think there's a lot of choices where, you know, where editors are very much like, oh, okay, let's let's pull everybody in on this event, whether they want it to or not. And then I think there are those events that are sort of created. Oh, yeah. All I want to say is, Jeff, at some point you should track down all the issues of Superman Doomed. Right. Oh, God. Superman just... Doomed is a version, like, I have not... Superman, Superman Doomed will, Jeff, make you want to just give up reading never mind give up reading comics yeah superman Boobs is absolutely fucking wacky yeah 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 no it it, it sounds so fucking long how many comics is it one two six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen so it's only 15 comics apparently but it felt much longer. Well, see, that's it. I mean, and and it is like because the, there were points where deadlines were missed and things were running late and stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 and what is hilarious? And I've said this before. Uh, DC's collected editions uh, department 
uh, is great in many respects, but is also terrible in that they will just put out collections of comics that are parts of crossovers and as if they're not parts of crossovers. Right. And so I got sent the comp of the second volume of Batman, of uh, Superman Wonder Woman. Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. All of which are, doomed, are chapters right. of Doomed. Right, right. All of them. And there's no real attempt <laughs> to contextualize what happens between those issues. Oh, they have God. Doomed has a, a a quasi recap page as part of the as part of the layout, and that it's got like a it's like a Daily Planet web page that is ostensibly saying what has happened, mm-hmm. but it's kind of useless to say oh, the least. God, um, and that's included, but nothing else. Mm. And so it is just. It's almost impossible to read. Wow. Uh, and it's, that's not the first time they did it. They've done it with, with almost all of their titles. Mm-hmm. Where they will, uh, they will just put out, like, the issues of the series. So, you know, it's Green Lantern Volume 3. Let's put in those, those six issues. Never mind the fact those are chapters like 3, 7, and 12 of a story. Jesus Christ. Like, let's, let's just put them in. Or it do the same for uh, Justice League uh, Dark. The, mm-hmm. the, the Justice League Dark goes through a period where the, the fourth collection, I think it's the fourth, maybe it's the fifth, is all episodes of different issues of different crossovers. Oh so it's God. got Trinity War and then Blight. Right. And there is no contextualization between the issues. That is just, I mean, that and is stunning. It's, it's staggering because all I can think is there is someone, you know, there is someone who's reading only in trade. Yes. And they're like, okay, so I bought, I bought issue four. That's great. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, I have no fucking idea what's going on. Yeah. Cause it doesn't even say you should be reading this as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is, so that is Justice League, uh, dark volume th- four. Mm-hmm. See, right? There is also a Justice League Trinity War collection and a Justice League Blight collection. That you could just read instead. Uh-huh. And they could simply just say, this story continues in these two collections and not in Volume 4. Yeah. yeah. But, but because they... you know that they want Volume 5. You're right. They're like, no, we just put this out. It'll be fine. And yeah. it, you're, it's it's killing any potential audience out there that's only reading a trade. Yeah. Because there's no, there's no attempt of... This story, like the other chapters of Sterling, can be found here. Right. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of a stunner. I mean, it really and clearly is the sort of thing that I can't imagine. I can't imagine everyone just went along with. I'm sure somebody was like, "Hey, this is a mistake," and somebody up the line was like, "No, shut up!" Like, you know, essentially... oh yeah, so, so, someone somewhere must have said something because it's mm-hmm. so wacky that I I refuse to believe that no one in the office was like, "Should we not be doing something about this?" <laughs> right. Exactly. This seems like a little bit of a problem. Should we put in a note or something? And people are like, no, 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 just let it ride. Because it's super, like, it is super simple. Instead mm-hmm. of doing your, like, chapter breaks are the cover and then on the other side of the other side of that page, right. a black and white version of the cover. Mm-hmm. You do the cover and then you do a page of this is what happened in between. Yes. Yeah, but I think there's literally, that requires, that requires Work. some money. Yeah, that requires... Yeah. That requires paying someone to do that. And yeah. they were just like, no, forget it. Like, they're, you know, whatever path they were on, it's like, you know what? The people the, the people at the libraries who are buying this are going to buy it 
you know, are less likely to buy it if they feel that it's not a standalone. So we have to make sure that it, to it's all just, intents and purposes, looks like yeah, a standalone I, on a flip test. It's so – oh, it's frustrating. It was really, really frustrating. Mm-hmm. We've got horribly off topic. How did we even get onto this? We were talking about original sin at some point. I can't even remember why we were talking about that. Right, exactly. It was it was kind of Marvel and the government and – Oh, yeah. And how did we get onto that topic? And that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's just let's just go on to another thing altogether. Something yeah. else I've been reading on my my catch ups uh, are like the last three or four months of Valiant comics. Mm. Are you still keeping up with Valiant at all? I, I'm not. I've fallen way behind, way behind. Oh, uh, so I I I have re- found I really appreciate reading them in this catch up format mm-hmm. in a way that I I is kind of surprising. Uh, in part because things like I discovered that I am actually a really big fan of the Ray book. Oh, really? I I I remember in the first issue being like, eh, and by now it's on like issue seven or something. Mm-hmm. And I am I am on board. I am one hundred percent on board. Hmm. Uh, I I think just wouldn't have happened if I was reading them as single issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same with uh, uh, Quantum of Woody. The, the mm-hmm. priest, the priest and bright reboot of Quantum. Oh, not reboot, but continuation of Quantum Woody. I don't <laughs> think I would have enjoyed that half as much. Mm-hmm. Were I reading it as single issues? I, I'm sorry to bother you, Graham. Before you get back, what was the first title? It sounded like you said the Ray. Ray or Rai? Oh, R I I. Okay, got it, got it, got it. It probably is pronounced Ray too. Okay, great. Uh, and Quantum and Woody. The, the, the Quantum of Woody. The uh, what? What is it actually called? I think it's called Q2, but I might be making that up. <laughs> I can't find the books in my pile. You know the one I mean, no. though. Yeah, there yeah, is. It's called. It's called Q2: The Return of Quantum and Woody. Okay. Um, and I, I'm not sure I would have had the, the same positive reaction to that uh, if I had just, you know, been reading it month on, month off. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I am constantly surprised by how much I like Violet, I think, because I do leave it so long between them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I read them and I'm like, oh, that's right. I love this. I actually really love this. Yeah, it's true. You've come back a couple of times and I, I mean, I've got a, I've got a shitload to read because I think I, I paid for, a, you know, the humble bundle and stuff. So I've got, I've got a ton stockpiled, but I have yet to, to, to really yeah. dig into it. Uh, unlike the new launches, I really liked Imperium. I loved Ivar Timewalker, which really is what if Dr. Hooper or Dick mm-hmm. and, you know, sold. Right. Sold on what of Doctor Who were a dick? <laughs> Without you know, that's pretty much all you needed to tell me. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I'm. I uh, I think Unity has finally come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, in large part because they brought in one of the characters from Harbinger, which is now finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they brought her in pretty much to show that everyone in Unity is fucked up, and mm-hmm. then wrote her out, hmm. which I kind of loved. I kind of love that she is basically there to be like, hey, you guys, this is a mess, and then leave. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Exo Man of War is still working for me. The, the Valiant, which is their their quasi-crossover event, even though it's only in one book, mm-hmm. uh, is very strong and has the Paolo Rivera art in that book. is holy crap gorgeous. Oh, yeah? Just lovely stuff. Hmm. Really, really nice stuff. Um yeah, all told, like I, I, I was again just being like, more people should do it like this. 
Interesting. Interesting. So there you go. Mm-hmm. That's all the comics I've read. It's not all the comics I've read. That's enough of the comics I've read. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> well, it's tough because I'm sort of like, hmm, Valiant. I'm like, should read it. Not. And unfortunately, uh, so far I, behind that I can't. I, I kind of can't grill you on it as much as. I, you know what else show. I will say that you should read, and, and I know you're hideously behind. Mm-hmm. Get the fuck back into 2018, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Seriously, just just make that happen. I don't just take it to work one day and just read through all the two thousand days. More importantly, uh, people in Britain who are around, mm-hmm. uh, if you're not reading the the Judge Shred's part works that are being put out by Hatchet and, and Rebellion, mm-hmm. you're missing out. They're, they're such great stuff. Uh, I think we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. Mm-hmm. There uh, there is a a biweekly hardcover series uh, called the Judge Dredd Mega Collection that is right. being released only in the UK and Ireland right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is basically like the best Dredd stories from his 38-year history. Wow. Um, and it's 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 lived up to that. Um, the, the first six issues have been, let's look at this, America was the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mechanismo was the second. Apocalypse War was the third one. Mm-hmm. The Origins graphic novel was the fourth. The fifth was the Judge Anderson issue, oh, really? which was really surprising. Shambhala. And then Mandroid is the sixth. And so they're all from different eras and it's not being done chronologically at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do get contextual notes in there. This is what's happened. This is when it happened. Hmm. Um, and it's just, any like if you're in the UK and you've been like ah uh, you know just right I've always been kind of interested but I've not known basically how to start right. and it's it's amazing for that and I, I wish so much it was coming out in America because I think it would be the thing that would break Judge Dredd in America. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's 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 a shame that it's not in that regard. Yeah, I hope somehow it gets American distribution or American release or something. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, it's super cheap. Mm-hmm. It's a series of hardcover graphic novels for ten pounds. Right, you've mentioned. Uh, and the first issue was like two pounds, which is like what three dollars? <laughs> Good grief, that's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's 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 been great. Mm-hmm. It's been really, really, really strong. And anyone in the UK and Ireland who who has been curious and has not picked it up, you really should. Interesting, interesting. As someone not in the UK, uh, and it's interesting because 2000 AD is one of those things that I'm like, uh, I don't know. I just I was thinking about it the other day, as in like, oh, I got to get involved, got to get back in this, you know, because it really some of my my favorite reading experiences, not from this last year because I wasn't reading it, but the year prior or even two years prior were in 2000 AD. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and if I don't know if you have the magazine, do you have access to the magazine? I do your... have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Ewing's writing the dread trip in that right now. Oh, is he? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you know, again. <laughs> well, see, that's it. I think the most recent magazine, uh, I, I think, also had Harlem's Heroes uh, as the what? as the pack in. Yeah. No, so, like mm-hmm. the the release. Uh, the shit. The most recent release. Yeah, the most recent magazine, you mean? Oh, uh, man. Hold on, let me see. Uh, I don't, if that's I don't true, you wrong. then... 
uh, Meg three fifty seven. I thought I let me see here. Doop de doo de doo de doo. Um, yeah, Harlem Heroes by Fleischer and Steve Dillon and Kev Walker. Oh, it's oh, it's the terrible one then. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, terrible yeah, shit. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not the good one. It's the terrible Harlem. I know, I know. Which is a shame. Although maybe I should check. Maybe three fifty six is the good one. Although. No, I'm fairly sure that Harlem Heroes has like a, a proper a paper. proper release on its own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because so. they've got um, it's also got Inferno in there, which is the follow up strip that where where things just go hilariously over the top. Oh, really? Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. It's it's one of those things that I read as a kid and didn't quite get, mm-hmm. and then you read later and you're like, what? What's this? <laughs> Yeah, Har- Harlem Heroes becomes Inferno. And uh, did you read the the Judge Dredd Year One uh, prose novels? No, I didn't. Uh, the because Harlem Heroes is in Judge Dredd continuity. Yes, and Al Ewing's Dread prose novel from the Year One line, which is like three books, and all like I really recommend them to anyone who who likes Dread, because mm-hmm. um, they're all written by Dread comic writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but Al Ewing's is, is Inferno is like a weirdly important part of the the setup of it. So it, it's it, I I recommend mm-hmm. I recommend highly. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's yeah, and, and there's a, there's a uh, an omnibus, there's an ebook omnibus of the three novels. Oh, is there? Wow, that's kind yeah. of great. So I I really like I I have no idea. Do you read? Pros on your on your iPad? Uh, I can. I mean, let's put it this way: I could, I could find find. I definitely have a Kindle that I'm read the pros on, so I imagine it's available for that. Yeah, well, that's how I read it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I I would like I would genuinely recommend it to you, right? Um, because they are all of them are good. They're varying levels of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the valuing one in particular is great. That, that would really, be, I would really love to read that. Fun and a super event. fast read. Because they're, mm-hmm. they're all quote unquote classic dread. So yeah. like they're, they're fast reads, they're funny, mm-hmm. they're kind of nasty. <laughs> so yeah, they're, 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 they're very fun. Hmm. And I, I think the Al Ewing one in particular is right up your alley. Right. Because it's kind of a heist story. Oh wow. Interesting. That's that's kind of a that's a great idea. So yeah, because uh, I don't know how deep on your dread mythology you are, mm-hmm. but the the first year of dread on the streets is also the year that his clone brother is on the streets. Oh, and his right. clone brother and his clone brother goes bad during mm-hmm. that year. Oh, interesting. Um, right, and so all of the books feature not only Joe but Rico mm-hmm. as main characters. Oh, that's great. And there's actually a spin-off, like, Rico novel. Is there? Yeah. That's... I think they're planning on doing more novels with Rico, because I, I want to say the first one says something like book one. Hmm. Well, that's a very savvy idea. Well, they, they make Rico into a, a very interesting character. Uh, and in the mythology, like, Rico lives on for a long time. It's just mm-hmm. that he does it on Titan. Right. So, so you can, de- like, you can, you can tell you can mm-hmm. tell a lot of Rico stories without mm-hmm. fucking with the comic continuity at all. Hmm. Well, hey, oh, speaking of uh, uh, 2000 AD and Titan books and stuff like that, I should tell you 
for what it's worth. I read uh, Zenith Phase One finally. Um, oh wait, have you never read it before? No, never have, never have. Oh yeah. man, what yeah. did you think? Uh, uh, absolutely, one hundred percent enjoyable. Um, also, I, I, could yeah. you just tell the fingerprints of everyone else in there? Because it's like the most obviously influenced work that I think Morrison has done. Completely. And Morrison's done a lot of works that are obviously influenced by other people. But Zenith is Zenith about like reads like I've just finished Alan Moore's Miracle Man. Very much so. Very much so. It was it was very much like reading Moore's Miracle Man, which it reminded me of heavily, especially in that first book. I assume that the other books go on to do more, but Oh, but yeah, book two already is a significantly mm-hmm. stylistic shift. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so it was very fun in that regard, seeing someone who's like, oh, here's someone who's aping Moore's Miracle Man and and doing it quite well, doing it entirely uh, thoroughly because I like Moore's Miracle Man. Seeing the, fa- the fact that it is derivative doesn't really detract from its charm at all. Um, there, there's definitely a – it's fascinating to me because there is that feeling of like – because Zenith is, is barely a character in it. Really, in phase yes. one, and, and I would argue continues to be that throughout the entire run. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. Because I, 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 I sort Zenith of finished is, it. Being... Is almost marked by his uh, passiveness throughout the entire, like in the third series, which is essentially Morrison doing Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, <laughs> Zenith is a background character for much of that run. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's almost a background character in this too. It's really fascinating. I was not expecting that um i was actually expecting the opposite so it really was very fascinating to me to be to see to see a character who's being pushed sort of first and center and also being sort of this very fresh take on the superhero and then i mean perhaps sensibly it's it's a it's very much a bait and switch in that first story you know the 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 first Phase one is very much uh, he's our he's our viewpoint character, he's our entry character, and he's also the character that can move the plot in a in the fact that he's he's the disruptive presence that that no one can really prepare for, you know. Mm-hmm. But but apart from that, it is really such a huge huge chunk of. It's very Miracle Man-ish. The amount of backstory to it um, is very, I mean, it's very, it's a very Miracle Man-influenced backstory. But it has a little bit of a Watchmen-type thing to it. I mean, it's a, the first book in particular is a fascinating idea of, that, that I almost feel like Morrison can't fully embrace, and I don't know if he goes on to in the later volumes, but the failure of the counterculture, the failure of the people from the 60s is pushed front and center in the first volume, um, and then and and then almost rescinded by the end of the volume, too. So it's a, it's a very odd um, I take. Keep, keep reading. Mm-hmm. There is – there's much more set up for what happens later in the series in the first volume than it seems. I, I believe it. I totally believe it because there, there's a lot of stuff that seems uh, only only even remotely touched on. So, um, And I kind of hope that it kind of has a little bit of the feeling of 
I have a lot of feeling that it, it was, I would like to believe that Morrison circles back to it in some cases when he's got his chops and he's got a little bit more, um, almost courage under his belt, I suppose. I, I, I still want to say things and I don't want to spoil it for you at all. Right. Do you know well, what I mean? I'm like, oh, ju- just wait until book four because – and part of me is also like, shut the fuck up. Right. right. Well, um, there's – yeah, the, uh, Zenith changes a lot as a series. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly think that between each volume, there is a dr- drastic shift in Morrison's tone in writing it. Uh-huh. Uh, probably less so between books two and three, but definitely between book one and two, there's a – massive shift and between book three and four there's a massive shift i believe um and between book two and one and two it's a shift up and i'd argue that between book three and four it's a shift down oh interesting um i i I want to say morrison has said this somewhere but i could be wrong there's Mm -hmm. definitely a feeling that by book four he's it's contractual obligation Mm -hmm. um whereas Morrison kind of gets his groove between books one and two. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I would argue that he has his groove in book one. It's just it is the groove of oh he has a groove, but it's yeah. not Morrison because book one when I reread it recently because I reread it pretty much at the same time I was rereading Miracle Man. Uh huh. Um, and there's there's something about the pacing mm-hmm. and about what Morrison chooses to focus on. Mm-hmm. That feel very much informed by Moore, a way that in the second book of yes. Zenith, right. it's just not the case. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this, the interests have shifted. It's one of the things that I find fascinating uh, to me is the the extent to which Morrison starts off as kind of a. I mean, it's 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 a perfectly acceptable enjoyable read and i'm fascinated to the extent to which morrison continues to develop and push since then cuz i think i feel like i'm just used to especially in the case of american comic book writers like once they kind of get like the first groove of like oh this is where I, what i can do in a lot of cases it kind of sticks you know yeah. what i mean so yeah. or you get and I will name no names here, but you mm-hmm. get writers who are convinced that they are pushing themselves forward, mm-hmm. and they're just pushing themselves in circles. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but they will talk about, you know, I'm really trying something different with this, and you're like, uh, I'm not sure you are. Right, exactly. Whereas the thing that I find is funny is is that the, it's like reading Morrison, reading Zenith, and being like, oh, I recognize this this Morrison, and this is not this isn't the Morrison of I mean, this is very much, this is the Morrison of, of the late 80s. This is the Morrison. Yeah, yeah. It has more in common with, you know, early issues of Animal Man or even yes. to a certain extent Doom Patrol. Yes. Um, you know. Yeah. There, there's a there's a uh, sincerity that he, he later learns to paper over for better yes. or worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sincerity and I think also, um, you know, bless his heart, I feel like Morrison – learns relatively early on how to tell a story well um, and then begins the process of pushing that and disrupting that and trying to do different effects with that. Um, but it is... Oh, in that, in that case, you'll love the fourth book. Well, and I, I 
uh, to be fair, that's never my – it's not my favorite Morrison. I always – like when I sit <laughs> I there, guess you might hate the fourth Yeah, <laughs> exactly. When I sit through something like, you know, Final Crisis, I find myself being like, ah, why – you know, whatever happened to that lovable old youth that, you know, uh, wrote Animal Man and in which was able to get resonance but but there was also – but all the pieces that you needed to see were in there. It was very fun to read Zenith and be like, oh, that guy's – here he is. Here's more work by that person that I like. And yet it was also kind of fun to sort of finish that up and be like, you know, I think I also have more of an appetite now or that is took a long time to develop for what – Morrison for other Morrison currently does yeah exactly and is trying yeah. to do you know I, I assume because you were doing a lot of this um, you know sort of reading up on old stuff and catching up on old reading you didn't get to the store this week um, but th- that doesn't necessarily mean that you did not read uh, nameless number two did you have you read it yet uh, I have not I am I uh, while I did get to the store I have managed to read nothing. Oh, interesting! Absolute zero. It's been it's been a wacky week, yeah. So how is how is Nameless number two? Great! I I really enjoyed it, and um, the thing that's great that's hilarious is, of course, all of my complaining of last issue was kind of like I was promised magic space astronauts, and there aren't magic space astronauts. And issue two is like, okay, so here's magic space astronauts. And here's like, your fucking magic space astronauts. Yeah, Jeff. yeah, exactly. And I'm like, ah, perfect. But interestingly enough, there is a lot less – and I sort of noticed this in the first issue of Nameless. It was, you know, quote-unquote straightforward for Morrison, uh, and, and that's the same thing here with issue two where it's very much a – you know, as of yet, he's not disrupting his own narrative. It's very smooth. It, it, it almost in that sense – um, you know, for anyone else, I'd be like, "Oh, it's just a good, solidly told comic." But part of me is kind of like, "Oh, this." When, is- when does Grant Morrison do good, solidly told comics? Well, no, 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 no. Because Morrison, Morrison, Morrison dares, and sometimes he wins, and sometimes he loses. You know what I mean? But there's kind of a thing of there's times when I feel like, "Oh, he's bullshitting me." There's times where I feel like, "No, he's he's deliberately cutting stuff out here," or he's making a confuse. He's making his flash forward more confusing than he needs to for whatever effect that he's trying for you know what i mean like it's kind of there's ways in which i feel like i give morrison the benefit of the doubt in ways that i wouldn't necessarily give other writers and yet at the same time i don't think that i necessarily give him a a free pass and and so nameless to me actually does feel like the, for anyone else, it would feel, like I said, it would feel like a perfectly good, strong comic. To me, it, it feels a little bit like it's Morrison's movie pitch, comic book movie pitch. You know what I mean? And it could go yeah. elsewhere and not end up being that, but that's what it feels like. It is so clear in its effect that, um, that again, I'm sort of like, I'm enjoying it. I'm, you know, there is part of me that enjoys... Morrison at his more um, challenging, I guess, you know, but it's mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, I'm totally down with this too. So that was a good read. <laughs> the two strangest sentences that I have to say out, out loud is 
I bought Princess Leia number one from Marvel. I'm still not sure how or why. I mean, I know how because I paid money and I was at the comic Wait, book store. Why, and also, why not why? Do you not like the first Star Wars well, see, comic from Marvel? I like the first I'm, Star Wars comic, but I, I, I it's Wade. Over Darth like, Vader. Yeah, exactly. It's Wade. And so I was like, okay, kind of like it's Wade. It's, it's uh, yeah, part of me is like, lead. it can't be that bad. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, is it? Is it that bad? It's not that bad. It is. Uh, and maybe you'll read it and be like, Jeff, you're full of, you're high on crack. But it just to me is like it was so fucking dull. It was a really, really dull comic. And you're not the only person I've heard say that. Oh, really? Oh, I'm kind of relieved because it it has a germ of a, a good premise in it and just Adultifying execution. I put it down feeling like a little bit of a freak. Like, oh my god, I'm never going to be able to complain about this book because I don't even think that I can admit to people that I purchased it. But uh, what is wrong with purchasing it? You know, I, I I think maybe part of it is I felt kind of embarrassed getting the first getting Star Wars. Like when I got that first issue as part of Loot Crate, it's like okay, I'm already embarrassed for getting Loot Crate, but I can sort of just be like, eh, you know, sort of like. There's a there's a, culpa, a deniability, plausible deniability. Uh, why why is it embarrassing to buy a Star Wars comic? Because, hmm. Tell why? me about your mother, Jeff. <laughs> uh, I, for me, I think the reason why it's just embarrassing is, is because I don't really feel like there's the idea that Star Wars could have anything to say f- to me at this point in my life. Just really seems ludicrous. Like. I had I had a good I had a good run. Like I saw Star Wars in the theater when it first came out. It was great. I've played some really good, you know, video games since then. I've read some really fun dumb comic books thanks to Marvel and a little bit to to Dark Horse. I will probably go see the JJ Abrams film with apps, you know, is with my expectations as lowered as possible. But what? What is hilarious to me is that you're having this reaction and you bought the comics, and I am defending you, and I know that I'm not going to buy the comics. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's a good. So why aren't you going to buy the comics? I don't care enough to pay three ninety nine for it. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Like I saw them in the store, and I was like, yeah, no. Mm. I I will probably read them if they come on Marvel Unlimited. I might get them at the library. Right. But I don't care enough to pay three ninety nine an issue. I mm-hmm. I just don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I've I've been a little more flush. Like if it was if it was one ninety nine, sure, sure, maybe. Right, sure, but, maybe. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like I I find I find my interest level mm-hmm. that low that I'm like, yeah, I might read it. I might not. I can think of so many other things I'd rather read instead. Well, I I think I have to say, having enjoyed the Jason Aaron Cassidy stuff much more than I expected to. I was kind of like, okay, I'll give Princess Leia a shot. They seem to be onto something here, uh, and it did not work for me. And but but like I said, there's still sort of a weird element of oh no, you know, maybe there maybe there is that. Maybe there is. Um, it's not that I'm t- it's not that I'm looking for anything from Star Wars per se, or rather. There might I feel like there is something under Star Wars that didn't that an itch that never really got scratched 
for me, mm-hmm. which feels weird to admit because a on the one hand there's been so much Star Wars stuff, and b <laughs> there have been so many opportunities. Right, exactly. There have been so many opportunities, and technically, I I took comparatively few of them. So it seems a little odd to both confess, like, yeah, I felt that there was this element that was sort of underserved, um, you know, and and I want to go after that. There is something where I feel like um, Jason Aaron, who has a real love for 70s movies, I think ha- might have a very good sense of the 70s movie-ish part of Star Wars that is part of what I feel is underserved. Sure. I, I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's about as close as I can come to articulating why I was interested, why I did pick it up and also what I do feel is missing. But, but I, I, let's put it this way. I put down that princess Leah issue and I was like, I did not get the feeling from that. So, um, yeah, kind of a weird week for, for comics. I also picked up, um, Batman Unending number 48, uh, Grayson number 8, which was really interesting for me because I assume you haven't read it yet or have you? Nope. Nope. Uh, I really haven't read anything this week. Oh, okay. So Grayson (laughs) 8. Or anything from this week, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Grayson 8 and Scooby-Doo Team Up 9 because we're pretty close to wrapping things up. I should mention Scooby-Doo Team Up 9 is Scooby-Doo teaming up with uh, Superman, and even though it's drawn in a, that sort of clean animated series style, I think you would get a kick out of that issue, Graham, because it is such what? a 70s you Superman. Think, what do you think I have against the clean animation style? Well, um, I think I could you be wrong. You take that back right uh, now. Okay. Whatever well, the hell you're saying, you take it back. Well, let me put it to you this way, Graham. Have you read any of Scooby-Doo Team Up? Yeah, I read the, I want to say the first two or three issues. Oh, okay. Because I've talked very well of it, and and you're you certainly don't cut me off or disagree. But I I sort of because you haven't expressed interest in picking it up or said like oh I'm on the ball and reading this. Part of me is like ah, okay it's, maybe it's not his thing for any number I, of I'm, factors. I'm on the ball and reading it behind basically. Okay, like I'm not reading it on the weeks they're released. So I think that if you get around to reading, uh, particularly Scooby Doo Team Up issue nine, I feel would be your jam. In that, I don't know how Kurt Swan would manage to draw Scooby and the gang, but um, it's just a very 70s Superman story in a way that I think you would enjoy. So even even though I would say that it's a, it's more of a, the setting is the Superman of the 70s. Because Superman himself actually does not... Um, there's weird factors. Let's just say that it, it opens is, up. Is he with, wearing the new 52 costume? He, he is. He absolutely is not. I don't think I, I would have to let me double check on that. Um, no, he's got the red underwear on the outside and everything. So, uh, yeah. Get you know, on brands, DC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, fun read. I think, I think you would like it a lot. Uh, and Grayson number eight is fascinating to me because it is on the one hand, you know, I, I really like King so much. Uh, this issue feels artificially forced. Uh, I, I think it was forced because of the convergence stuff to basically. It, oh yeah. It's cause it's the end of season one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. 
So it ends with like, hey, come back for Grayson 9 in like June of 2015. Three months. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. I was like, come what? back soon. What? By soon, we mean quite a while away. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's going to be super weird. Yeah, it is. I actually completely forgot all that stuff was happening. I was like, oh, that's right. The DC books essentially end this month. Yeah, exactly. And in ways that I hadn't really – with Grayson, I hadn't expected. And and I think there's a little bit of the – and I could be wrong. Maybe King was like, no, 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 no. I, I was clearly going to build to this point at this speed, but it feels like there's a very super quick transition of like – Okay, so let's just pretend we're in fifth gear now. You know what I mean? And then I'm way behind the Grayson. I have to tell you. I, oh, I, really? I when was the when was the issue where he was in the desert? Five? Uh, I think so. Well, no, wait. Yeah, was I've it, I've not read since that. Is is five the desert or is five the four's the gun and five's the desert? I guess that's I, I want to say right. that's issue five because yeah, I'm yeah issue five's the desert. I'm yeah. way behind. I've not read anything since then. Six or seven. And, of course, part of me is like, mm, I'm trying to think what six and seven were. I think six was the girls' school. Six, six is apparently the Midnighter. Six oh, okay. is apparently the Midnighter, according to uh-huh. to the website. Uh, and seven is... Uh, it says, Grayson and Helena must battle their old foes, the Fist of Cain. Yeah, I'm going to have to revisit that. I remember thinking that it was an okay issue, but goddamn if I can remember anything about, about it. it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for the most part, he's, you know, they've made the choice to kind of do done in ones with with the with the um, ongoing plot line of Dick infiltrating Spiral. Um, and, and that builds to a, sort of builds to an head in issue eight, I suppose, but... But there is there's kind of a modular aspect that that kind of makes them feel that can make the the Grayson episodes feel both kind of accomplished and yet kind of disposable at the same time. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. so um, I I am I, I I and I I've been loving the series. I could not tell you why it's fallen behind the way it has. Right. But honestly, I saw people talking about issue eight this week, and I was like, I've not read that book in months. Right. Right, you're like, huh, what what was happening? Yeah, it, it really was. It was like, I like that book. I just I honestly just forgot it existed apparently. Right. Well, you know, we've we've had we've had stuff. You've had a you've had busy time. We had some heavy Legion of Superheroes talk last time. Uh which people seem to dig. Yes, I was goodness. I thank you listeners for yeah. uh, appreciating the Legion of Superheroes talk. I was especially amused by someone who wanted us to do a Legion read through when we finished Fantastic Four, only for you to point out that at the rate we're doing the Fantastic Four, that'll be three and a half years from now. <laughs> <laughs> we really should pick up the Fantastic Four, shouldn't we? Like we well, should pick up the rate, or maybe not, because uh, listeners, tell us in the comments, tell us on Twitter. Uh, are you prepared for us to do <laughs> for three and a half years of Baxter building? Because I have to tell you, I don't think I am. I, I don't think I am either, but I'm still perhaps mistakenly assuming that... I, I think by the time we... Basically, by the time Kirby's gone, I think we're going to speed through, like, the next 100 issues. Uh, I think... I think How do I put it? I think there'll be a learning curve. Because I think... Because I, to me... There's some insanely interesting stuff that happens once Kirby leaves, and as far as I can, as far as I'm concerned, 
that's all that is literally over by 150 and then at that point i think we could just it's, about yeah, I, I i it's pretty much like snooze time until burn appears uh for you i even though i deeply deeply love stuff that roy thomas was doing with george perez and then wolfman's doing with god help me i think keith pollard uh up through 200 i feel like there's no way that it needs to be talked about at, at the picked apart at the level that we're picking apart these individual issues because i feel like I, at a certain I, point i would actually argue yeah that I, a certain point within the lee kirby stuff we're going to be we're not gonna have to deal with it that much i suspect that at least from what from what i've read about Kirby's feelings and um, certainly stuff in the Kirby collector, I kind of suspect that, yeah, like come issue 70 or 75 or whatever, we can probably close all of that up in an episode, I think. Un unless we just get completely, because I think we're real, the way that we're wonky about Kirby, it may be the opposite. We may be actually slowing down to, to kind of look at it to see if oh we god, I, I'm not even sure it's possible for us to slow down. Yeah. <laughs> By slow down, I mean we're, stay we're at doing this pace. Well, yeah, stay we're at doing this pace. Issues every exactly. two and a half hours. Jeff. Yeah. I mean that's <laughs> that's that's slow, man. Exactly. Um, we're talking about all of this, and mm -hmm. we should point out that the next episode of Wait What is a Baxter building. That's correct. Next uh, this time next week, listeners. Pop Pickers, we'll be doing issues 25 through 36 and annual number two, which means I have to read those this weekend. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm like, shit, 25 through uh, 36. Yeah. Um, we hope you will come and join us for that. Yeah. Uh, we have been having a lot of fun, or at least I've been having a lot of fun with the Baxter building. I will not speak to Jeff because Jeff, who can tell? That man's an enigma. Yes, I am. I'm an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a never-ending fucking cold. So who can really tell? Um, oh, you got the cold. You've been coughing half on mute, half not the entire podcast. God, I know. I'm so bad with this mute button. But uh, yeah, which so um, I think it, it feels like it's just the cough is the only thing that I have. But that's going to take a while to leave. Uh, listeners, I think it's time for us to sort of... Uh, clean up and sign off i think right i think that is a great idea mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um much love to the 95 people over on patreon is that right i think that is right uh who much love that's i i feel we're suddenly back in like 1994 <laughs> oh graham i never peace out yeah dude dude i love saying peace out i've always been excited to say that so yeah yeah, much much love for the ninety five patrons that that help keep us afloat. Thanks to them, their their uh, generous uh, support of us. We've got the Baxter Building coming coming up next week as a result of that. So um, you can also look for us on Twitter at uh, Twitter. We are wait at wait what podcast, and of course look for Graham as Graham M G R A E M E M. And I am Lazy Bastid, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-I-D. Uh, we're at Tumblr at waitwhatpod.tumblr.com. Um, you can check us out on Stitcher if you want to leave us a review on iTunes. It seems like it's been a while since we've had a review on iTunes, and I feel like it helps keep keep us fresh. It helps keep us honest. Yeah, exactly. And discoverable, 
which is just as important. Um, and I think, Graham, is there any, anything else that uh, you want to say in closing? Only that I appreciate all of you people for sticking with us through this trying time. <laughs> Actually, no, there's something There's something I want to say. Um, people who listen to this podcast who may have listened to House to Astonish before House to Astonish went on hiatus, you may not know House to Astonish is back. That's right. Um, and it's back with an episode that is, I swear to God, I said this on the Tumblr, if you have not listened to it, listen to at least to the opening six minutes of the new episode of House to Astonish in which they summarize the last eight months of comic news. Wow. It has to be heard to be believed. Wow. Al and Paul do... It's genuinely breathtaking. I was laughing my ass off. And they're not doing it to be funny. It's just the fact that they do, in the space of five minutes, summarize eight months worth of comic news. Wow. Wow. That is that is stunning. Terrifying yeah, and stunning. Uh, so yeah, people who uh, think, I like Wade Watt. I like that Graham guy. I wish there was more Scottish people on podcasts talking about the comics. Uh, you want to listen to House of Astonish. It is very enjoyable. And so, yes, I am giving a plug to another podcast. That, that's my sign-off for today because I'm that generous. Wow. wow. I know, right? Yeah, I'm just great. great. You really are, Graham. You yeah, really I am. I, I, that's why. Oh, God, I should have kept the, the document open with all our... But I can't. I can't remember. Damn it. That's That's why why I'm spectacle. Yeah, you're specs. (laughs) You are such such the specs. Okay. Uh, Do you want to sing us out, specs? Bye!